Thanks for popping on your headphones and joining us for an episode of Ballsy History, a podcast about big personalities and little-known stories. Settle in for a tour of the outrageous acts, incredible stories, and outsized characters that shape history. We're your hosts, Elizabeth, Elise, Elliot, and Maureen. We're glad you're tuning in. We're excited to introduce you to another podcast we really enjoy, Thoughts from a Page. Although we'll let Cindy Burnett tell you more about her show in just a second, if you enjoy listening to conversations with authors and finding your next favorite read, we recommend you listen to Thoughts from a Page. Be sure to check out the sections pertaining to history books on her website. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Today on our show, we'll learn about the great New England vampire panic, which culminated in exhuming dead relatives in several rural towns and villages. Accusers searching for vampires rummaged around bodies, removing hearts, and generally dismantling the corpses in the hopes of stopping their vampiric family members from draining another victim. Vampires lurk throughout popular culture, appearing on television in True Blood and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, as well as Twilight books and even the character The Count on Sesame Street. But long before Buffy was protecting humankind, a public hysteria gripped several New England states in the late 19th century. Roughly 200 years after the Salem witch trials, locals were on high alert as they believed vampires were in their midst. In fact, roughly 80 of these disturbed vampire graves are documented, but it is believed that there are hundreds more. What caused people to come to the conclusion that their dead relatives were returning to suck the life out of them? Let's find out. The Yankees of the 19th century are generally remembered as both practical and pious citizens. However, rural New Englanders at the time were actually fairly heathen. Roughly 10% belonged to a church, but many people lived so far away from others that gathering communally to worship just didn't happen. Rhode Island had actually been founded as a haven for religious dissenters, and when Christian missionaries came to this area, they lamented that there weren't Bibles in the homes, nor were people going to church. This sort of isolation led people to rely on folklore to help explain what they saw around them. Although vampire panics hadn't occurred since 18th century Europe, different diseases they would have seen firsthand included rabies and the genetic disorder Prophyria, which included vampiric symptoms such as extreme sensitivity to sunlight and teeth that turned reddish brown. Vampire legend originated in Slavic Europe, 
where the word first appeared in the 10th century. Perhaps Slavic and Germanic immigrants brought the vampire superstitions with them in the 1700s when they colonized Pennsylvania or served in the Revolutionary War. It is not known for certain. The first documented reference to an American vampire scare is found in a letter to the editor of the Connecticut Current and Weekly Intelligencer from June 1784. In it, a councilman, Moses Holmes, warned people to beware of a certain quack doctor who had recommended families to dig up and burn dead relatives to stop consumption, also known as tuberculosis. This vampire panic was actually in response to an outbreak of tuberculosis throughout Rhode Island, Connecticut, Vermont, and other parts of New England. Classic symptoms include a chronic, sometimes bloody cough, fever, ashen skin, and weight loss. To family members, it appeared the victim was withering away as if being consumed. By the 19th century, roughly one out of every four deaths in the eastern U.S. happened because of this disease. Because there was no germ theory yet, physicians were unable to explain how infectious diseases were spread. 19th century cures included drinking brown sugar dissolved in water and frequent horseback riding. No one really knew how to help. Yet those who were ill begat others with illness, and those who died were often followed by other family members. There were many superstitions at the time, magical springs with healing powers, burying shoes by the fireplace to catch the devil if he ever tried to come down the chimney, nailing horseshoes above doors to ward off evil. Hopeless villagers found it easy to believe that those who had perished from consumption in turn preyed upon their living family members. Rhode Island was considered the vampire capital of America, and a young woman named Mercy Lena Brown lived in Exeter, dubbed Deserted Exeter, at the time. The Civil War had taken a toll, and railroads, promising fantastic land and opportunities to the West, were luring people away. The population was dwindling, and many of the farms were abandoned. Mercy became one of the best-known cases of a presumed vampire exhumation. Her mother contracted consumption, and it spread to the rest of the family, including her sister, brother, and finally to Mercy herself. The neighbors came to believe one of the family members was a vampire who sucked the life from the others. Her January 1892 obituary was terse. Miss Lena Brown, who has been suffering from consumption, died Sunday morning. Yet two months after Mercy's death, her father George Brown reluctantly permitted others to exhume the bodies of his family. Perhaps neighbors had suggested one of the Brown women wasn't dead after all, instead secretly feasting on the living tissue and blood of those still living. As the number of people in Exeter shrunk, maintaining social ties became even more important. An exhumation might represent a way to demonstrate the family was acting towards the good of the community. It was a gesture George could make. Mercy's was the most recent corpse. Her body exhibited little decomposition. Her heart showed fresh blood and she had turned in her grave. The body was in a fairly well-preserved state, a reporter wrote. The heart and liver were removed, and in cutting open the heart, clotted and decomposed blood was found. 
Villagers became convinced that Mercy Brown was the cause of the consumption, so they burnt her heart, mixed it with water, and gave it to her surviving brother to drink in order to stop her. This cure, however, was not successful, and he also died. Mercy wasn't the only person to undergo this post-mortem meddling. Frederick Ransom of South Woodstock, Vermont, died of tuberculosis, and his father was worried that Ransom would attack his family. So he had him exhumed, and his heart burned on a blacksmith's forge. While the press dismissed the burning of organs as folk medicine, town records would report hundreds of onlookers attended the burning of Frederick Ransom's heart. Henry David Thoreau wrote in his journal, I have just read of a family in Vermont who, several of its members having died of consumption, just burned the lungs and heart and liver of the last deceased in order to prevent any more from having it. He wasn't the only one to notice that during this period of larger societal progress, the embrace of folklore still took root. We seem to have been transported back to the darkest age of unreasoning ignorance and blind superstition instead of living in the 19th century and in a state calling itself enlightened and Christian. One writer at a small town Connecticut paper noted, after exhumation, what to do with the bodies varied by region. In parts of Massachusetts and Maine, they were flipped over and left alone. Yet, in Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Vermont, villagers burned the hearts and livers from the bodies of suspected vampires. In the 1990s, archaeologists discovered 29 skeletons in a gravel pit in Griswold, Connecticut, once a colonial-era graveyard. These bodies showed signs of tuberculosis and had been rearranged into skull and crossbone patterns. In 1896, New York World Clipping came to the attention of a London stage manager and aspiring novelist named Bran Stoker, whose theater company was touring the United States that same year, and his gothic masterpiece, Dracula, was published the following year. Some see Lena in the character of Lucy, a consumptive-seeming teenage girl turned vampire, who is exhumed. She also appeared in H.P. Lovecraft's The Shunned House, a short story about a man haunted by dead relatives that includes a living character named Mercy. Today in America, there are people who drink blood or drain psychic energy from others. People who claim to be vampires are in the thousands, with demographics transcending class, race, and gender. They perform blood-sucking rituals because of, they note, the lack of natural energies their bodies produce. Psychic vampirism has been part of occult literature since the 19th century. And the idea that some people borrow or take energy from others is common throughout Asia. Apart from the societal taboos, consuming human blood is generally not advisable. Not only can it carry a range of diseases, including hepatitis, HIV, and parasites, but also hazardous amounts of iron. No one knows what causes hematomania, the craving to drink blood, but people who experience it describe it as an intense, thirst-like sensation, as well as having withdrawal-like symptoms. There are at least 5,000 self-identified blood-drinking vampires in the U.S. People who consume human and animal blood because they feel they need it to survive. According to the Atlanta Vampire Alliance, 
Thomas Gans at the University of California, Los Angeles, suggests the relief from drinking blood could be largely psychological, tied in with the way our brain controls health in a physical way. There is likely a strong placebo effect, further enhanced if there is a ritual component, and if the individual feels some sense of exclusivity, such as drinking a very expensive and rare wine. Since blood is highly nutritious and a natural laxative, it may offer temporary relief for both digestive and mental difficulties. Vampires in America have a long and varied history, ranging from medical to social, and communities are influenced in many different ways by their real or perceived presence. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Ballsy History. Tune in next week to hear a new episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Thank you.